Amen. Good morning. What a joy to be with you. Thank you for praying for the Southern Baptist Convention. I was just there this week, and uh, we need that prayer. Uh, so thank you for that. It's a joy to be here. I did not realize it had been four years since we'd been here. It seems uh, as it had been uh, much sooner. Uh, Samuel is a dear friend of mine, your senior pastor. I'm so thankful for his integrity, for his uh, friendship to me, and for his love for you all. Uh, he is very fond of you and uh, thankful for the way God is working uh, here at this church. The sermon passage for this morning comes from Joshua chapter 21. Joshua chapter 21, verses 43 to 45. Joshua chapter 21, verses 43 to 45. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it, and they settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to the fathers, their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for all their enemies for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would be with us as we open now your word. As it is preached, we pray that you would help us to hear it not only in word, but in our spirits, in our hearts, and in our minds. You know the ways in which we need conviction. We need to be led to repentance, to confession. And you know the ways in which we need to be encouraged to persevere in obedience, to press on enduring in the faith. And you know those things for this church as a whole, and you know it for every individual. So I pray now, Father, that as we exalt your word and listen to it together, that you would help convict and encourage as you know that we have need. And we pray this together. We love you. In the name of Christ, amen. One of the simplest ideas, which is so fundamental to being a Christian, and yet which is often so confusing and bewildering, is this, trusting God, trusting God. Have you ever been in a conversation with someone where you gave the counsel, or maybe you were in a conversation with another brother or sister and you received the counsel, just trust God. Just trust God with this. Maybe you've gone to someone with a situation about work, about parenting, about school. The counsel back is, I think you should just trust God with that. Very often when we consider trusting God or encourage others to trust in God, it, it really sounds like don't do anything. 
Don't do anything. Just trust God. Instruction to trust God just sounds like a Disney movie. Just let it go. Don't do anything. Let go. Let God. Quit trying to control the situation. Just trust God. What does that mean that we should do? How do you trust God? If you're going to trust God, what does that mean your life might look like? Two things today. Trust God keeps his promises. That's the first thing. Trust that God keeps his promises. Trust him. But trust God, secondly, by keeping his commandments. Trust God that he's going to keep his promises. But secondly, trust God by keeping his commandments. Spurgeon puts it this way, God never leaves true trust without work to do. So that's really the two things we'll see this morning. Trusting God, that he will keep his promises. That's what we are to trust in him. And secondly, that we ought to trust God by keeping his commandments. We're going to see that this morning in the book of Joshua. What is the book of Joshua about? What's the book of Joshua about? What comes to your mind? If you're familiar with the Bible or church at all, you might surely know the song, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Maybe you have the verse Joshua 24, 15 somewhere in your home, posted on the refrigerator or mounted on the wall somewhere. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. There are a lot of verses in Joshua which would be well worth hanging up on a wall at home. But what's Joshua about? I want you to jump with me back to chapter 21. Go back to chapter 21. Look at the beginning of that chapter, chapter 21. It might just seem that this entire chapter is just a a pointless record, a a file that you might keep in a a drawer or in a closet. If you came upon this chapter, you might think you were stumbled across some meaningless paperwork. The title for the chapter, you might have something like this in your Bibles, a heading, Cities and Pasture Lands, allotted to Levi. Now, doesn't that just sound exciting? I mean, who's excited about this passage? The pasture lands and the cities allotted to Levi. I I, I doubt it may not have been your experience recently. Maybe it was. I could be wrong. This would be the kind of church that might prove this wrong. You were having your devotional, or you asked someone about their devotional this week. How, how's your devotional been going? Oh, man, let me just tell you. I was in a rough patch. I was having a hard time reading through Scripture. But then, then I got to the spot where God gave 13 cities as pasture lands to Zebulun and Jachneum. And my soul was just lifted into the heavens. Now, I think we tend to misunderstand the meaning of several long lists and allotments like this in the Bible, this being one of them. Go back a few chapters to chapter 15. Chapter 15. Chapter 15 through 21 are series of lists. Lists of lists of lands that are appointed to the people of Israel. Records. Details. 
long list of names and the lands given to those names. Look at chapter 15. Chapter 15, you see, you might just look at the headings. You see the land that was appointed to the tribe of Judah. Then chapter 16, you can just keep going with me. Chapter 16, you see the same for the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. Then if you look at chapters 18, you'll see you have these headings. You'll have the land for Benjamin. Then in chapter 19, the record of the lambs to Simeon, to Zebulun, to Issachar, to Asher, to Naphtali, and Dan. Land given specifically to Joshua as well. Chapter 20, you have cities for refuge, portions of land where sinners can flee. Then in 21, though not a tribe, the line of the priesthood of Levi is given land in an allotment of land. And just look at chapter 21, look at verse 19. This is how these chapters are reading. Chapter 21, pick back up there in verse 19. The cities of the descendants of Aaron, the priests, were in all 13 cities with their pasture lands. Look at verse 26. The cities of the clans of the rest of the Kohathites were ten in all their pasture lands. Verse 33, the, the cities of several clans of the Gershonites were in all thirteen cities with their pasture lands, all names of descendants of Aaron and Levi. What's the meaning of these lists to us? It may seem like unnecessary paperwork or like the author stumbled upon a file cabinet and just decided to throw the deeds of some land into the property. But it's actually wonderfully tremendous in its meaning to us. Bear with me, the meaning actually goes all the way back to Abraham in the book of Genesis. God chose Abraham out of all the peoples of the earth to make Israel his people. That means the destinies of God and his plans on earth and Egypt were entwined together in one people, in Abraham and in his descendants. God's saving work on the earth, ultimately in Jesus Christ, would come through the people of Abraham and his descendants. And way back in Genesis, God promised Abraham that he would give him and his descendants land. In particular, we knew it's the land of Canaan, what we know to be the promised land. God providentially brought them from the book of Genesis to the land through famine in the desert. He brought them to the land through slavery, 400 years of slavery in Egypt. He brought them to the land through 40 years in the desert where they had no food and no water and God miraculously fed them. God miraculously brings his people of, of his name right up to the land of Canaan which he promised them. And that's where the book of Joshua begins. We're now at the land. We're now at the place God had promised that he would bring them. And then what happens when they get there? War. Chapters 1 through 12 in the book of Genesis are about war. War against the people who were in the land God had given to his people, Canaan. The book of Joshua is about the people of God entering the promised land of God, even though it was filled 
with the enemies of God. That's what the book of Joshua is about. Joshua 12, 24 summarizes that first half of the book that in all Israel, it tells us Israel destroyed or displaced a total of 31 kings and kingdoms in the land of Canaan. So they came out of Egypt through the desert. They defeat Jericho. They cross the Jordan. They defeat the Canaanites. And then in chapters 15 through 21, you get the records the names and the places where people get to stay. They have the land. And then you get the summary, the importance, the meaning of Israel getting this land. Go back to Joshua chapter 21. Pick up verse 42 this time, but read it again. These cities each had its pasture lands around it, which Levi's would have needed to raise lambs. So it was with all these cities. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it. And they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord God had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. It means that these deeds, these land records, were sweet records of God keeping his promise. You see how this is not only a reference to Joshua, what Joshua had promised he would give them, but it says in verse 43, this is the land he swore to give to their fathers. This is what he was promising to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob hundreds of years earlier. Thus the Lord gave to Israel the land what he swore to their fathers. Now, they are putting their feet, building their homes, going to raise their children and grow crops and worship on the dirt that God had promised he would give them. All the war in Joshua, the crossing of the Jordan, victory after victory, God's keeping his promise. God's keeping his promise to Abraham. And his promise to Jeremiah. It didn't feel like God was going to keep his promise for a while there in Egypt. If you go back and look at Exodus, you look at the end of the book of Genesis, when God's people were in famine and in captivity for 400 years, it didn't feel like God was keeping his promise. When they came out and they found enemy after enemy after enemy, it didn't feel like God was keeping his promise. When they were in the desert for 40 years, they were wondering if God was going to be keeping his promises. The book of Joshua is concluding to all the earth that God keeps his promises to save his people and bring them home. This ought to make us sing. This is fuel for trusting God, for loving God, for worshiping God, for believing that when he says something, he is going to do that thing. 
you know, as a father, I, I want to be the kind of father that when I say something, my children know that that's what I'm going to do. But I'll just confess, sometimes I will tell my children, I will be there in a minute. And I might fully intend to be there in a minute. I hope so often don't I get caught up on my phone or checking my email or, or attending to something our dog has chewed up or something going on in the house, a hole in the roof. God never does that. Maybe you've, dis- maybe you've been disappointed with your father on the earth. Maybe, you, maybe today's just a reminder of all the promises your father never kept. Well, there is no faithful, 100% faithful, promise-keeping father like God. But God is like that. I'm thankful to have a testimony of men in this church. There are many men who are like that. Not perfect. God keeps his promises. If God says something, he's going to do that thing. And that's a means of worship for us. Look with me in Psalm chapter 105. You'll see what God has done in the book of Joshua as a means of worship and loving and trusting God all through the Psalms. Look at Psalm chapter 105. Psalm chapter 105 begins, O give thanks to the Lord and call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Sing to him, sing praises to him. Tell of all his wonderful works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Okay, now watch. Watch what we're worshiping God for. Watch what we give our affection to God for. We're going to praise God for his keeping his promises from Abraham in Genesis 12 all the way through Joshua chapter 21. Psalm 105 continues in verse 7. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever. God never says, I'll be there in a minute and forgets. He remembers his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant that he made with Abraham. His sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant. Saying, this is what he said to them, to you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. And then you see the psalm flow from Abraham to Joseph to Moses right through the history of the Old Testament to Joshua. Look at Psalm 105, verse 42, and see how it ends. For he remembers his holy promise. He remembers it. And Abraham, his servant, so he brought his people out with joy his chosen ones with singing, and he gave them the land of the nations. And they took possession of the fruit of the people's toil that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise the Lord. Let me just ask you this morning, is your heart or your mind or your affections for the Lord, are they low? Have you been into a place or a day this week or maybe a season of months this year where your affections for the Lord are low and you are wondering about his faithfulness and what he's doing and where he's gone and what he's up to. Look into the Bible and see that God keeps his promises. That's a reason to sing and be thankful and to trust God that even if you feel like you're in Egypt, even if you are in Egypt, 
God's not going to not keep his promise. Doesn't matter if it takes a day or a thousand generations. A thousand generations. God's promises will come true. Every promise will come true. And worship, our love for the Lord is an outpouring of gratitude to God, a recognition of what kind of God he is, that he keeps his covenant promises. And that means we can trust him. You can trust God. While we were back visiting our friends a while back in North Carolina in, in Asheville, there was a corner on the way from our house to their house. And every day, there, I think there was a, a different homeless person every day with a different sign. One day, it, and like Austin, some of the signs were, were more creative than others. One day, we passed by a guy, and he had a sign. And I think it was meant to be a joke. It was meant to get attention. But I thought it was really sad that either this was your joke or that it was true. His sign simply said, 16 years ago, my dad told me to wait right here. Not just, I just wanted to put him in the van and take him home. Let's, let's go find him or something. The sign, probably just a creative joke to garner a sympathetic laugh. It's descriptive of how a lot of people have come to feel about God. What's he doing? Seems like he's abandoned me in the desert of, of life, left me in captivity, abandoned me to an enemy. But can't you see how God keeps his promises? This is why we should put our faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. As we've read and sung already and prayed this morning, God has kept promise after promise after promise through history and through the Bible. God has promised us mostly that if we will put our faith in Jesus, then Jesus, much like Joshua was, there's a connection to the name there, that Jesus would be our Savior, that he would fulfill all of God's promises to save us. Well, not just save us from Austin heat, Lord help us, but to save us from our sins and the fire of hell. That Jesus would be our Savior if we put our faith and trust in him like the people of Israel put their faith and trust in following Joshua as God's man. You can trust God. will actually forgive you of your sins because he sent his son to die to forgive your sins and Jesus actually rose from the dead as he said. God will keep that promise to you to forgive your sins if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Now those who trust in Christ, those who are trusting in God, what are we doing now? We're, we're waiting on God to take us home. If you put your faith and your trust in Christ and you put your trust in the God of the Bible, what are we doing right now in life? Where, where are we in history? Well, we're, we're kind of like Israel somewhere between Abraham and Canaan. We're trying to get home. We, we are waiting for the promises of God to come finally and fully true when we will be taken home to be with the Lord in heaven forever. Well, this is the hope of the book of Revelation. John had a vision. He looked and he saw that day ahead of time. He saw heaven. He saw the enemies of the earth, the enemies of God's people judged. He saw Christians brought home into the garden, into the land, as it were, to be with God forever. 
The Bible is filled with promise after promise after promise coming true. 700 years after God made promises to Abraham, he brought them into the land. Now 2,000 years after God had made promises to Abraham, then he sent Jesus to die on the cross to save his people from their sins. And now we wait for God's promise to take us home too. Will he do it? He will. Trust that God keeps his promises. That's what it means to trust God. That what he has said he will do, he is going to do. If he said he will judge, he will judge. If he has said that he will comfort, he will comfort. If he has said that he will save and forgive, he will save and forgive. If he has said if you put your faith in Jesus Christ and trust him, who has risen from the dead, crucified for your sins, he will forgive your sins. And if he has said he will bring you home to be with him, he will surely do it. Just like he kept his promise to Abraham to Isaac, to Jacob, and to Joshua. You could trust God because he keeps his promises. So what do we do? I mean, while we are on this road, while we are on the journey to heaven, to be with God forever and eternity, between now and the day that the Lord may take our breath from us, what do we do? How, how do we trust God? What, what does it mean to trust God? Does it, does it simply mean just really trust him inside. Just really, really trust. I would put it this way. Actually, I would not put it this way. Spurgeon would put it this way. Let me, let me, help, let, me let Spurgeon help us. He says, trust includes obedience to him. Trusting God includes obedience to him. We have not trusted him at all unless we are prepared to his commands as the rule of our lives. The ship is on fire. The bales of cotton are pouring forth a black, horrible smoke. Passengers and crew are in extreme danger, but a capable captain is in command. And he says to those around him, if you will behave yourselves, I think I shall be perfectly able to help you escape this fire just now. Now, if they trust in the captain, they will do precisely as he orders. No sailor or engineer will refuse to work the pumps or refuse to prepare the boats. Neither will any passenger disobey any rule. In proportion to their confidence in their leader will be the alacrity with which they obey him at once. They believe his orders to be wise, and so they keep to them. Neither they fear nor they're rash. That will lead them to rush and to fro, contrary to his bidding, if they have a firm trust in him. When the boats are lowered and are brought one by one to the ship's side, those who are to fill them wait till their turns come. In firm reliance upon the captain's impartiality and prudence, they will get into the boats or they will wait on board, for they consider that his orders are dictated by a better judgment than their own. So far as each man and each woman firmly believes in superior officer, discipline will be maintained. The book of Joshua gives us a great insight into trusting the promises of God like this, meaning that the thing that you do in order to trust and put your trust in the promises of God is to keep the commands of God. That's what it looks like to actually trust the promises of God. Go with me back in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1. 
This is where you might find that famous passage. Maybe this is posted somewhere in your house where Joshua is commanded to be strong and courageous. Look at it closely. Joshua chapter 1, verse 6 to 8. First, look at what God has said to Joshua. Moses has just died. They've come upon the land. Now, what are they going to do? This is God's word to Joshua. Be strong and courageous. God's people had not always been strong and courageous to this point. For you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful. Here's what you need to do, Joshua. Be careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. The main thing you need to do, Joshua, be strong, courageous, keep the commandment. Don't turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. Joshua, you should meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, then you will have good success. Success in what? Success in what God has promised him. Not just anything he wanted to do. And then Joshua tells the people, in Joshua chapter 1, verse 10 and 11, Joshua tells the people, commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions, for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan, go in and take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Look down at verses 16 and 17. And they answered Joshua, all that you've commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Having recognized Joshua was God's man the inheritor of Moses' office, so to speak. They say, just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Joshua, you tell us that God wants us to do something. That's what we are going to do. Only the Lord be with you, Joshua, as he was with Moses. In other words, our only hope is if that God does some things through you like he did Moses. Essentially, there are two commands here. There are two commands in chapter 1. The first one is, go to war. Go to war. Pick up your things. Go into the land that is filled with enemies and fight. Go in and take the land. The other one is, be holy. Keep the law. Keep my commandments. Can you name the Ten Commandments? Can you keep them, Israel? Do you know the law, Israel? Are you prepared to be holy in the land, Israel? Go in and fight, take the land, go in and keep my law and be holy. That's what it means to trust God's promises. Not just to go fishing and say, man, I hope God works this out. But to do what he's asked you to do and keep the law towards holiness. The people cannot say to God, they cannot say, this is not what it means to trust God's promises. What it means to trust God's promises is not simply to say, God, in my heart of hearts, I, I really, really trust you. Okay, well, let's go to war. Well, I mean, 
I mean, like that, I don't know if that's a good plan. No, if you're going to trust God's promises, the way that we do that and we show that and live that is by keeping all of his commands. Trusting God means picking up your weapons, picking up your bed, being prepared to lose your life in the fight for seeing God's promises fulfilled. Trusting God meant doing something. God promised to give them the land and they were to obey God by going in and taking it. When you think about it, this is one of those wonderful mysteries in Scripture. Is God going to give them the land or does God want us to go in and fight and take it? What's the answer? Yes. Yes. I want you to go in, trust me, Lay down your lives in war to go and fight, and I'm going to be the one that gives it to you in the end. It is both. And so Israel was called to obey God toward God's promises. They were called to obey God toward God's promises. The commanders go in, fight, keep the law, and I will give you the land. Isn't this the kind of conundrum that we're in all the time when it comes to trusting God? Is God going to do it or does God want me to do something? Yes. Yes, you keep the command. You do what God has asked you to do. That's it. That's really all you can do. Is God going to take care of my children when I'm out of town? I don't know. Is God going, or what are our church funds going to be like in three years? I don't know. But what are we to do? Trust God's going to keep his promises, and on the way, we keep his commands. It's just up up to us to keep his commands. That would have been the headline of the front page in the newspaper. Israel takes the land God promised them. God's going to keep his promises. You cannot keep God's promises for him. You You can't keep God's promises for him. You can't make God's promises more or less true. That's what makes them God's promises. You can't add to God's promises. You can't add more promises. You can't take away promises of his covenant. You can't get better promises from God than the ones that he has promised in his word and the ones that he's promised in Christ. And no one, no political vote, no spouse, no parent, no government, no war, no climate change or inflation, no exploration of the universe, nothing can stop any of God's promises from coming true. God's promises are up to him, and he will keep his promises. What can you do? You can trust that God's going to keep his promises and keep his commands. The commands that he's given us in God's word. Israel kept God's commandments going into into the land of Canaan fearlessly. They were strong. They were courageous. They went in. And for the most part, they were strong and courageous. They took the land. What a great example for us. We believe that God is going to do this and that Joshua is our man. Let's go and do it. That's our situation. That's our whole posture in life. We believe that God has given us the promise of the kingdom of heaven for eternity and that Jesus is his son and king of kings in heaven and on earth. And that's our king. We're just going to keep his commands. I just wonder if you've been struggling lately to keep any of God's commands. Surely not. Surely you're just fine and you're doing fine, right? 
I think if we're all honest, we could name a few commands the Lord has given us. Not to be angry, not to be selfish, not to lie. This doesn't take long to find some that are hitting home. Struggling to keep God's commands. What might be at the root of our struggling to keep God's commands? Loving, trusting, remembering that God's going to keep every promise. So it may look to you like keeping God's command makes you a loser in life. It's going to cause more suffering, actually, to keep God's command at work this week. What's beneath our failure to keep God's promises and keep God's commands are many things. One of them may be that we have forgotten God's promises. And we're not leaning on them. We're not trusting them. We're not... They're not in our mouths as worship like Psalm 105. Yeah, we might trust them in the sense that we, yeah, we know God does what he's going to do. We've got a theology of, of sovereignty. But it hasn't turned into a song like Psalm 105. Maybe you're struggling with evangelism, struggling with the, the command that Jesus has given his church to share the gospel with the lost. Just remember the promise that Jesus gave us in Matthew 16. Did he not tell us? The gates of hell will not prevail. He will build his church. Maybe you're struggling to give financially to this church or to missions. Has God not promised us in Ephesians 1? Has the Holy Spirit not a guarantor to us that we have an inheritance waiting for us in heaven so we can let go of every worldly thing that we might ever own? You're struggling to remain committed to the truth, to speak the truth, to speak the truth of God's word, to speak the truth of the gospel to those who are lost in a world awash with worldly ideology, ideologies. It can be difficult. You sometimes might wish your pastor Samuel or your other elders might be preaching something a little bit more comfortable. Something, as Timothy said, that might tickle your ears when we've been commanded to protect sound doctrine in our churches. One of the brothers from our church is preaching at Fitzhugh Badger's Church this morning, and if I have my timing correctly, he's currently preaching Acts chapter 20, where Paul tells the church, when I leave, fierce wolves are going to come in, and they're going to twist true things and preach false doctrine. You, church, are commanded to protect this church from false doctrine. It's not just Samuel's job or your elder's job. It's your job. Well, has God not promised that even though sometimes it might be uncomfortable, it might be awkward to be a church that says things like you have said this morning in the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, has God not said that he will judge the world according to his word in the end? That all those who put their trust in God's promises, they will be justified in the end. Maybe you struggled to follow the command through Jesus Christ to forgive someone else, to be forgiving. The command in Colossians chapter 3 is to forgive as you have been forgiven. Maybe you're struggling holding on to bitterness to someone. Might you just consider the promise that God has given to you? That if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us all of our sins and cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness, as we read this morning. Maybe you're struggling to follow the command that God has given us to obey authority. Maybe it's a bad authority. Maybe it's a good authority. Maybe you're struggling with your authority, the authority of the government in your life. A 
an authority that God has given the government or an authority that you have in the church. God has given the pastors authority or God has given the church authority or maybe it's an authority at home. And you don't want to submit to authority like the Bible has led you to in any of those circles. And maybe there's actually an abuse of authority in some of those circles. I'm not here to say that we should mindlessly submit ourselves to untold abuses in the world. But you can submit to authority like God has commanded us to, remembering that God is going to bring every deed into judgment, things in secret, things that are known. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, that's a promise. Children, don't forget the only commandment that comes with a promise is to children. The children, obey your father and mother and it will go well with you in where? In the land. Maybe you're struggling at work, struggling to keep God's command to be a man or a woman of integrity at work. To actually submit to your boss as to the Lord, Colossians says. And you don't want to do that. Not, have you met this guy? No. Well, we're called to submit even to those bosses in the workplace, like slaves, as unto the Lord, remembering this promise in Ephesians, that everything we do as unto the Lord will we not be rewarded, even if we never see a reward for it on the earth. What kind of people ought we to be? We ought to be a holy people, Second Peter says. Second Peter says God has promised that he is coming and he is going to destroy the earth as it is and renew it with a new heavens and a new earth, a new holy heavens and a new holy earth. So what kind of people ought we to be in the meantime? We ought to be a holy people. Why? Because God has promised that he's going to make a new holy creation. You see, all of the commands that God has given us are intricately inextricably connected the promises that God has given us. And if you're struggling to keep any of God's, the simplest of commands in your life, why don't you look back and see if there's a promise that I have forgotten or that I don't know or I don't understand. You know, sometimes my, my children, even my children, if you could imagine, I ask them to do things, the simplest of things. And you know what sometimes they will say to me? You probably never had any experience like this in your whole life. But sometimes my children will say to me, why, Dad? I'm, I'm sure that's just my house. No one else has ever had the experience. Why? We don't have to ask why when it comes to the Lord. He has given us promise to promise to promise to give us motivation for keeping all of his promises. This is the Great Commission your discipleship in the church should be about learning to trust all of God's promises, helping each other obey God's commands. When you're counseling someone in the church, when you're talking to another brother or sister who's going through something, let me encourage you not to just say, trust God and then leave. Now, that's the best you can do. Say, let's trust God together and pray. And you can't think of anything else to say. Praise God. Say, let's trust God and let's pray and let's go. But might you consider how you might think of a command that they could follow in their situation? So-and-so is trying to ruin my life at work, and I'd like to get back at them. Well, let's remember the command from Romans. 
to leave vengeance to the Lord. Let's follow that command together and pray about you following that command that might be really hard for you to follow right now. When you get a situation, you feel stuck. You don't know what to do. You are lost. You're in the darkness. You are confused. Look for the theology. Look for the promises of God. But also look for commands to do. God is not going to ask you to keep his promises for him and fix everything and bring everything to an end. What do you do? You say, God, what is your command to me? To close, this might sound like salvation works to us. God makes promises. I keep God's command. God keeps his promises because I kept his commands. And friends, remember, God is never going to save us because of our obedience. There is no way that we can obey ourselves into earning God's good promises to us. The gospel takes the pressure off of our obedience. Our obedience is out of our worship and joy and trust, not earning God's favor or election. Remember that in the book of Joshua, Joshua ends the book with that famous call. Maybe you have this on a poster somewhere in your home, Joshua chapter 24. We're going to the land, we've settled in the land, and God says to them, or excuse me, Joshua says to the people, choose this day whom you will serve, God or Baal. Who are you going to worship in this land? And the people, what do they say? They say the only thing they could say, oh, we're definitely going to serve God. We're, we're going to serve God. He's, he's our God. And you know what Joshua says when they say we're going to serve God? You know what Joshua says? You can't do that. You're not going to do that. <laughs> no, you're not. And they reply, yes, we are. We really will. We're going to obey God and we're going to keep his law and keep his word. And Joshua's last words in the book of Joshua are basically, well, let's write down that you said that so that we can remember. And then we get from Joshua through the book of Judges. And we're not going to go through the history of Judges, but how does the book of Judges end? A disgraceful moment where the only thing that we can say about the people of Israel is what? And every man did what was right in their own eyes. They had quit keeping the commands of God a long time ago. So they needed David. Well, friends, this is God's great grace to us. Even when his people said they would keep his commands, and they could not and did not and would not keep his commands, God is gracious to save them. God is gracious to save you. Do not walk out of here thinking, the burden of my life is for me to keep God's commands so that God will not be mad at me. No, God has forgiven us of all the ways that we have failed at his commands. We're not saved by command keeping. We're saved by the perfection of Jesus keeping God's commands in his life and laying down his life on the cross for us. The one man without sin, the one who man who kept all of God's command, became the died for all of us who have not been keeping God's commands, so that we who have sinned would become the righteousness of God. Make sure that your trust is not just that God in general is going to keep his promises but namely God is going to keep all of his promises in Christ to forgive you, to save you, to secure you by his spirit, and to bring him home, to bring you home. As Christians, we are to keep God's commands as we trust his promise of grace in Jesus Christ. And then one day when we are all who have trusted Christ, 
who have put our faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, who have spent our lives trying to obey him the best we can, trust his promises, when we reach the promised land of heaven, we will not be singing about all of our obedience. We will not be singing about all the wonderful things that we did for the Lord, all the wars that we fought. No, we will say with the people, with Joshua, isn't it wonderful? Not one word of all the good promises of the Lord that he had made to those in Christ had failed. All came to pass. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your kindness to us in Christ. We have failed at your commandments time and time again. We are struggling to keep your commands even today. Would you help us by your spirit, by your word, by trusting in your promises to be a people, to be a church, to be fathers and mothers and children who trust that you will keep your promises and so fearlessly, strongly, and courageously keep all of your commands for our joy and your glory. In Christ's name, amen.